Good morning. It's good to see you guys out there. Those of you who don't know, my name is Andrew Storms. I am uh, one of the elders here at the church. I'm not on staff. Our pastoral staff is actually out today. Tyler Hardy, our lead pastor, is with 325 college students on the fall retreat. It's been a great weekend for those guys and gals. And Chris Pletcher is away with his family. Kaylin Taylor, our normal worship leader, is also gone. But the great thing about them that they're gone is they're not really in charge of our church anyway. Jesus is. So I'm just filling in this morning, going to bring a little message, and uh, we've had a great time already this morning. I just pray that God would um, strengthen us and share with us what's on his heart and hopefully encourage you in your walk as you serve him more and more. We're in week two of a series titled Life with Jesus. Last week, Chris opened it up, talked about worship and what that looked like in our lives and spending time with Jesus. And at one point in the message, he actually asked the question, something like this, that how many of you get tired of hearing us here at Antioch talk about spending time with Jesus? And I saw a few hands go up in the room, some honest hands, and I've been there myself, and it was a little bit sad for me to think about that because I think we're just missing the whole goal of it, and that's our, our premise today. I'm gonna try to get us to understand why it is that we need to spend time with him. And Chris spoke about some, some lies that we believe as Christians, but I wonder if it's not actually so much that we have lies that we believe versus that it's truth about Jesus that we choose not to believe. And so I wanna approach that. I'm reminded of a passage in Hebrews chapter four. In verse number 12, it says that the word of God is alive and active, so that sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, so that it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That's what the word of God does in its power, but I have to ask, do we really believe that to be true? That it's really active, it's actually alive, that it's living, breathing the word of God. Can this really divide the soul and the spirit? My soul is my flesh, my mind, my will, my emotions. Can it separate that from the spirit of which we are really actually, we're just a body that has the spirit living inside of us. But in John chapter one, just speaking of the word, in verse number one of that chapter, it says that in the beginning was the word, notice it's capital W, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And just 11 verses later, it says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's speaking of Jesus here. It says that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, who is full of grace and truth. But do we actually believe that? Is it just words on a page? Or do the words of page now come to life and we see him as Jesus sent by the Father, as the Son, that he is the living, active word of God? that he comes to divide our soul, he comes to divide us, our spirit, so that we can now follow him. So I have to ask the question, how do you know whether or not you believe something? How do I know that you believe this? How do I know that I believe it? I believe the gauge is very simple. Do you obey it? If you obey it, you believe it. I'm a father to four children. I can promise you, the reason they obey me is because they believe me. Case in point, we go to the grocery store, I tell them I need you to stand right here out in the parking lot. And if you move out where all these cars are, it's dangerous. They obey because they believe that what I say is true. If they want to show that they don't, 
They act in disobedience and ignorance, and they walk out because they really don't believe what dad is saying to them. So is it just enough to believe this? Can you just know the word of God, and now everything's back to normal, everything's good. Andrew, I get up and I spend time with Jesus, and I read my Bible, and I believe that there is life inside of these pages. I do that. But my question to myself is, do I really connect with God the way that he has designed for me to connect with him? Is just knowing the word enough? So my desire this morning is to provide vision for you of why in the world you would even want to get up, why you'd want to read your Bible, why you'd want to spend time with him. What's the purpose of it all? Because I get a little bit nervous that perhaps maybe just reading isn't enough. I was reading this past week in John chapter 5, in verse 39, it said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. That's what I thought. I thought this was like eternal life in here. So I'm reading this passage. God's highlighting, that's my thought. And he said, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, but look at verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So am I telling you, am I suggesting that you can actually read your Bible know it, study it, think you have eternal life, and come oh so far from coming to Jesus. That's exactly what I'm saying. And so my goal this morning is to show you, not in a formulistic way, but coming through the blood of Christ, how we can actually approach him and realize that now he alone is eternal life. Amen? So the question is, how do we come to him? That's what I want to answer here in just the next few moments. I would give you some... Um, some context, some homework here in just a minute uh, about some reading I think would be very helpful for you in answering that question, how we come to Jesus. But I have to ask real quick, are there any teachers or coaches, professors, administrators, people that work with students? See a few hands, a lot more in the first or Yeah, see some back there. You know, something I've noticed, I'm a teacher myself by trade. I was a basketball coach in the high school round for 10 years. And so having taught and coached, you realize that Seasons are long, semesters are long, and that you have to remind your students, you have to remind your players of things often. Like they don't just show up knowing and expecting, you know, you can't expect them to know what to do. I think the easier place to see that is in parenthood. Can I get an amen from, from some parents? Yeah. Like there, you have to constantly remind. You have to encourage them. Keep going. Keep pressing on. And so what I want to show you about how we actually come to Jesus, there was a group of people 2,000 years ago that struggled with this. So we have your homework this week is to read the book of Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews, a fascinating book, it's gonna kinda unlock and show us this group of people that was struggling with pressing on. So what happens is, as Jesus has come to the earth and he has given the ultimate sacrifice for his life and he has now gone to the cross and now he's resurrected and he has ascended into heaven, the Jewish nation, the Hebrew people, they're sent a letter Originally, the, the writer or the, the scholars thought it was Paul that wrote the book of Hebrews, but we actually don't know. In fact, most nowadays don't think it was Paul. They think it was a Jewish Christian, but the, the Jewish Christian inside of Hebrews is trying to get these Hebrew people not to fall away from the faith. Because what happened is they believed in Jesus, and now they're coming under great persecution. And so it's like the start of the season. Everybody's fired up. They're ready to go. I believe in Jesus. I know he died. I know he's the Messiah. He's the one everybody's been talking about. But now the middle of the century comes and it's been 10 years, it's been 15 years, and they're wondering, is this really, was that really him or is there somebody else? And we completely missed the boat. They're confused because all they've known their whole lives 
apart from Jesus, is a list of rules and regulations. That's what the Israelites knew. They knew about the tabernacle, the temple, Solomon's temple there in Jerusalem. And they would come to the temple, they would worship. They'd have to bring doves, bulls, rams, goats, you name it. And they'd have to sacrifice. There'd have to be a shedding of blood. They knew about the rules. They knew about the regulations. You gotta pray. You gotta come to the temple. You've gotta wear your nice clothes. You have to look the part. You have to say nice things. But now all of a sudden, Jesus comes, and these people that have chosen to follow him, they find themselves on the outside. Now they're meeting in homes secretly because of persecution. They find themselves meeting in caves and going all around, and they're now beginning to fall away, and the writer's like, don't, don't do that. Encouragement to them, just like you would a, a student or a player, is keep going. What happens to us in the Christian life is sometimes we do that, and we start backtracking. We're spending time with God, and we feel like we're pressing into him, and then persecution comes, or life happens, and we just simply just begin to fall away. But I believe that's the case, because did you know it's actually easier to walk in bondage than it is in freedom? I talked to a friend of mine years ago. He grew up in Albania under communist rule, and he was telling me about the persecution that came on the Christian church and how they would meet secretly, and he said the church was thriving, a strong underground church, and there was people loving on each other and meeting needs, and all this time they're being oppressed from the outside forces, from the government. But he told me that in the early 1990s that communism broke. And he thought, this is the answer. Now we're all free. We can do whatever we want to do. And they looked around in just a few short weeks, and their nation was completely in shambles. Nobody understood how to walk in freedom. Because you see, it's easier to be bound because somebody's telling you what to do. They're telling you how to act what to say, and now, in freedom, you have the option to make your own decisions. And that's what these Hebrews, the Israelites, are fighting with right now, the Jewish nation, because they're like, I just wanna go back, it's just easier. But see, their ancestors did the same thing. When they were in the wilderness, back in the Old Testament, they came out of Egypt, they came out of bondage by the blood of the Lamb, they came through water baptism, the Red Sea. They find themselves in the wilderness, and now they just complain. You haven't given us anything to eat, nothing to drink. We're gonna die, only that we could go back to Egypt. I just wanna go back to bondage and be in my old junk because it's easier. I know that. I know how to put on a good face and act like I'm not struggling versus walking in freedom. But how many of you know that freedom, it came at a cost, but it's so much better than being bound and walking in bondage? So the writer of Hebrews, he's trying to help them. He's trying to get them to see that Jesus actually is who he says he is, that this is the real deal. Now granted, they didn't have the book of Hebrews yet. They were reading it for the first time, and so they're looking at it. I don't have time to get into it today, but you're gonna read it this week. Shake your head if you're with me, thumbs up. There you go, you're gonna read Hebrews this week. He tells them in chapter one, he said Jesus is actually greater than the angels. We know that, but to them that was a bit foreign. But the angel was who had always brought message, uh, he was the messenger, whatever the angel was, constantly throughout the Old Testament with their ancestors. It's always angels, it's this, hey, they talked to Mary, they talked to Moses, they talked to Abraham. And he says, hey guys, Jesus is greater than the angels, I'll prove it to you. To which angel did God ever say, you're my son? Well, that's a pretty solid point by Father God right there in chapter one of Hebrews. They move on. He says he's greater than the prophets, he's greater then Isaiah is greater than Jeremiah, all these guys that came before you. But the main prophet they were concerned with was Moses. So in chapter three of Hebrews, 
He approaches that and he shows that Jesus is actually greater than Moses. He's trying to encourage them to quit falling away and to press on because there's better things inside of Jesus. He talks about Moses being a servant in the household of God, and that's true. And right behind it, he says, but Jesus, he's the son over the house. He said, what servant is greater than the son? There's not one. He said, just like the builder is actually greater than the building itself, he said, so Jesus and his ministry is far superior than that of Moses, than that of angels, than that of any prophet that you've read about. Now, all those are great, and again, we're trying to answer the question, why would we come to Jesus? And it seems foreign as we're doing this, but it's helpful to note that Hebrews points those things out. But finally, we start to get to where we're gonna land today. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about that Jesus is not only our apostle, but he is our priest. To you and I, that probably doesn't mean much. You hear the word priest, we think of the Catholic Church. So for context, you have to understand what is a priest? What did that mean to them as they're reading this, as they're struggling with wanting to go back to their old way of life, or do I press in and pursue? What is a priest? They knew it well. The priest in their time was the mediator between a holy God and a sinful man. They were the ones that had access to parts of God that would minister to God in the temple. You and I, the outsiders, Right here, we just come and we bring our sacrifice. I can afford a dove, I can afford a ram, and we bring it to the priest and the priest slaughter it. They take it, they take the blood, and they themselves get to enter in and worship and meet with God. But in the Old Testament, we see it's talked about in Hebrews a ton. It shows what happens in the Old Testament, that you had this tabernacle with Moses, it's set up, he gave them all these regulations, all of these rules, and he said the priest minister in the outside and as they walk inside into the holy place, you see bread, you see candlesticks, there's all these different ornaments and things, but then right behind that, there is a veil that blocks them. On the other side of that curtain, on the other side of that veil, is the Ark of the Covenant. It's where God chose to dwell. And once a year, not once a day, not daily time with Jesus, one time a year, once, a high priest, not just one of the priests, the high priest was chosen to go behind the veil. He had to go with blood. He could not go in there without the shedding of blood. So he would go in there with blood on him to cleanse him and he would walk behind the curtain and for a moment he would commune with the living God. He was paying the price with the blood for the sins of himself and for that of the people. But if he walked in without blood, if he walked in with an impure thought, if he walked in with any sin whatsoever, in an instant, he's done, killed physically. He can't stand in the presence of a holy God. In fact, so much so that they would tie a rope around his ankle that as he walked into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, if he died and they felt literally the dead weight of the body, they didn't dare go in themselves, they would just pull him right back out because they knew themselves that they were not worthy to come before a holy God. And in Hebrews, he approaches that, and he said, guys, Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's far superior to Moses, but he alone is our high priest. That meant something to them, and when you grasp the reality and the magnitude of what that means for you and I, it can absolutely change our lives. We understand that he alone 
is our high priest. The only way you go behind the veil is with blood. If he's our high priest, he has to take some blood with him. Guess whose blood he brought before the most holy place? His own. Says that he is the Lamb of God. You can read about it in Hebrews 9, that the blood of Christ is far superior to the blood of goats, of animals. He crucified himself. He gave his life through his blood so that you and I could come before a holy God. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Remember, he's trying to encourage him. He's trying to get him through the semester that's difficult. He's trying to get him through the life, fight through the persecution, hold firmly. We have a great high priest. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In all of Hebrews, even though it's chapters long, 12, 13 chapters, I believe everything comes down to right here, the verse we're about to read in Hebrews 4, verse 16. Why would he want to come to earth? Why would he want to experience what you and I did? Why would he go through his own blood? Why would he make a way? Why would he want us to go beyond the veil? And in verse 16, a verse that has radically changed my life over the last five years, it says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, in the Christian life, we have the option. You can come through the blood of Jesus. He paid for your redemption. He paid for your sins. But I think the problem is we stop there, some of us. We just say, well, the, the blood is good enough. I am not minimizing the blood of Jesus. Don't hear me say that. But when we only stop at the blood, the problem with that is we never press on into the greater things of God. And what's interesting to find is that obviously we struggle in life, but if he's our high priest, the Bible says that he's seated at the right hand of God. It says that he's praying for us. Well, if we've already received the blood, then why in the world would he need to pray for us? Like if that was all there is to Christianity, you just have to receive Christ. You just have to come to the cross and you have to admit that you're a sinner and you believe in him and you confess him as Lord. That is amazing. That's what buys your ticket in. It's going through the blood. But it's like getting the ticket into the place, the blood, and you're saying, I'm good, I'm out of here. He's actually made a better way for us. The prayers that he's praying, they're pointless if redemption is the final stopping place in our lives. What I wanna say to you is that the throne of grace is an actual place. It's real, it's real. You don't believe me? Read Hebrews. It talks about that the tabernacle, the old, the Old Testament, it said that that tabernacle that Moses had with all those sheep and goats and priests and their high priests, it said it's just a shadow, a type of the real one that actually exists in heaven. And it says that in Hebrews 9 and 10, it said that Jesus actually went into the real tabernacle, not made by human hands. He went with his own real blood. There is a real place called the throne of grace. I've been there and you're gonna get the opportunity to go in just a few moments. It is a real place. And God, I know it sounds so mystical. You're talking craziness right now. I'm not. 
I'm reading the Bible in Hebrews, it talks about realer than I'm standing here right now, realer than you sitting there right there, there is a real throne of grace. And God has paid for that, and he offers it to us. But why would he, why would he offer it to us? I think it's because he knows we need mercy and grace. We're living in this life. The enemy tries to get you to never go there. Some of you are like, this is foreign to me. You've been duped, he got you until today. He said, there's, no, there's nowhere you can go. What are you gonna do? Turn to yourself. The minute you turn into yourself, you're toast. It's over because you're gonna find weakness inside of there. You're gonna find things. You don't have blood that's good enough. Just like in the Old Testament, that priest, the high priest, he had to go in every year because once wasn't good enough. He'd go in there once, he'd pay for his sins, the sins of the people, a year would go by, and he, I gotta go right back in. He's constantly doing it over and over. He'd walk away and get pulled right back, and every year, in Hebrews, read it, it says that Jesus went one time, that's it. He said once is enough, I only go once. I'm pure, I'm perfect. And he said I've now carved out a way for you to come to the throne of grace, to receive mercy and grace, to help you in your time of need but it's impossible to describe what it feels like to go there. I know it sounds strange, but you gotta trust me. Stay with me for just a moment. A couple things I wanna point out about the throne of grace is that it is not a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace. Earlier in the passage, right above this, it says that everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, he knows, I know, now you know that he sees everything. And so what the enemy does is he comes and blocks it and he says, you can't go behind the veil. Do you know what you did last night? Do you remember the thoughts that you had? And that's what he tries to do, he tries to stop us. Why would he want us to go behind the veil? The enemy wants no part of that because he knows the moment we taste of the grace. He knows that the moment we taste of the mercy, he's done. No longer us, but him. You know, as a father, being earthly, being evil, as the Bible speaks of, if my kids come to me, my first reaction should never be to push away. It's not, it's not to judge. I am far from perfect on that. At times, even, I have to admit that I get annoyed. If you have enough kids, you'll get annoyed eventually. <laughs> They'll ask questions over and over and over, and I thought I just answered it. But you know what? He never does that to us at the throne of grace. He's a good father. He's a great father. He never pushes you away. He just wants you to come. Do you know that the only thing that's at the throne of grace, there's only two things that are there. Mercy and grace. That's it. We said it. There's no judgment. There's no, well, you gotta pay for that. We can't. We already paid it. It's in the blood. It's all, it's all like how you get there. We come through the blood, to get through the throne, to get to the throne of grace. And what I love about the throne of grace, I would thought, I, when I first read this years ago, I'm like, at the throne of grace, there's grace. But he said there's actually mercy first. Why would we need that? Well, take a survey of your own life and you'll figure it out. To get to grace, you have to have some mercy on your life. You need somebody to pay for the sins, somebody to pay for what you've done. But sometimes it scares me. I think that we just open this up and we read through the book and it's life-giving, and we're looking at it, we're like, this is good, man, this is helpful, and I'm not knocking this at all. You have to be in the Word, but do we walk away from this having never actually gone 
to the throne of grace. Another point, when can you come to the throne of grace? Anytime, anytime. Better than Whataburger, better than Walmart. Those things appear to be open all the time. But you know what, the throne of grace, much better than that. It's always open. When you're asleep at night, guess what? Throne of grace is open. When you wake up in the morning, guess what? Throne of grace is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for eternity. The throne of grace is open. Heaven and earth, adios, they're gonna be gone one day. Earth, no longer here. Guess what's still there? The throne of grace, that's where God lives. That's where he is, that's where the son of God is. Man, we're gonna go there in just a minute. Some of you, your hearts are being stirred right now. I'm not trying to convince you. This is not a spirit of persuasion. This is the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to you and showing you that you've missed something so great, so profound in your life that you can actually come to the throne of grace. Our college students, we were here Friday night. We got to talk about this. We got to talk about how supreme and great God is. We talked a bit about the throne of grace, but as we look at the greatness of Jesus, yes, he's better than angels. Yes, he's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. And yes, he is our high priest. And those are all amazing. They're all just supreme and in and of themselves. But as I was studying to help those guys see this, I realized that his supremacy, how great he is, is not actually in the fact that he's greater than angels or that he's better than Moses or really even that he's our high priest. Again, I'm not minimizing any of those. But I love what it says in verse 15 of Hebrews 4. We read it before. It says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he didn't sin. His supremacy isn't built on his greatness, it's built on the fact that he became just like us. That's what the high priest wanted to do. If there was a different way, he wouldn't have even needed to come. He could have just shed his blood and been done with it. But he said, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna open up a way for you to go to the throne of grace. It's amazing that he was tempted in every way. I'm gonna talk to the guys for a minute. I know what some of y'all are thinking. He hasn't been tempted in the way I've been tempted because there's no internet. He can't just click on an image and be done with it. You're telling me that the son of God was never tempted in that area when he was on earth? You gotta be joking yourselves. The enemy's trying everything to get this guy to slip up knowing that he's fully human, but he's also fully God. It says every temptation he's dealt with. Guys, girls, it doesn't matter. It doesn't say in my Bible that he did 99.9% .9 of them. It says he did what? All of them. Every temptation you've ever faced. The enemy tries to come and tells you that's foreign. It's just, it's just you. You're the only one that deals with this. That's complete trash. And you'll figure that out when you go to the throne of grace because you'll understand that he's paid for everything. I sit there and think about the life of Christ, the things that he went through, and yet he never sinned. That's incredible. But look how his life ended here on the earth. His friends desert him. His disciples, they don't even want to be a part of him. His own brothers call him crazy. The Pharisees want nothing to do with him. In fact, they hate him so much that they bring him before the rulers. We know the story. It's not just some nice thing in the children's Bible book. It's a real thing that happened. Jesus was brutalized. He was murdered. He was killed. He was spit upon. He was hit. He was bruised. He was broken. 
He was just literally destroyed. Read about it sometime. And Isaiah, in chapter 53, talks about it. Psalm 22, that he was marred more than any man in creation. You couldn't even tell he was human on the cross. But as I'm sitting there, the thing that bugs me the most is what happens at the end of his life. Because all these people that should have been cheering him on and should have been telling Pontius Pilate, no, 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 don't crucify him. Nobody's there. The same crowd that yells crucify him just a week before, it's the same one saying, oh, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here comes our king. And then a week later, be done with him. Where's Lazarus that he raised from the dead? How come he didn't hold his hand up and say, hey, I got something to say about this guy right here. Nobody said a word. None of his disciples, nobody's healed. The guy with the withered hand, shouldn't he have just stuck his straight hand up and said, hey, look, look what he did to me. Nobody says a word. He dies the death. He has to go through his own blood to get to the most holy place, and he's willing to do it. But notice as he comes off of the cross, you can read about it in the Gospels. Joseph of Arimathea secretly, privately, wants his body. He gets his buddy Nicodemus, who's not real sure about all this, and they take the body down. But there's two people at his funeral. That's ridiculous. I was able to go to a, a, a service memorial service a week ago Saturday for my grandfather. So I got to watch you know, a funeral. But the weird thing about this, though it's very fascinating and miraculous in fact, is that my grandfather died 70 years ago. 70 years ago my grandfather died and we just now had his funeral. The reason that is is because his were some remains that were found and identified from North Korea that the North Koreans sent back to the United States last summer. And by the grace of God, one of them came back as Harvey Storms, my grandfather, who I never knew. And in fact, my dad, he never knew him either. He was born two months after he died. So think about that. 70 years, this man has not been forgotten. We had dignitaries from South Korea come and speak. I thought there'd be maybe 50, 100 people there, about 50 family members, four to 500 people packing into this church. They're to honor a man they don't really even know, but they're letting him know that he hasn't been forgotten. So I'm sitting there in this service, honored beyond belief, thankful to God for some closure in our family and in my dad's life. And I'm sitting there thinking, how does my grandpa, who I'm gonna get to meet one day, he was a God-fearing man, how does after 70 years, how does nobody forget about him, but at Jesus' funeral, there's two people? Like, that's a real thought. And then I felt this gentle slap upside my head from God, and he said, you don't serve the God of the dead, you serve the God of the living. I don't need a funeral, amen? That's what he came, he's a God of life. He doesn't need us to, to glorify all that stuff. What I love is that he became just like us, that's the point, that in my weakness, I cannot relate to all of you, I can't. I don't, I don't know what you go through. Most of you could probably relate to me. I have a pretty easy life for the most part in all sincerity, but there's some people that have some hard, difficult, challenging lives, but I, I can't, I can't relate, but he said, I, I wanna come down. I wanna know what it's like. I wanna know every temptation. I wanna know every weakness that you have because that's what lets me know I just wanna help. I just wanna help. That's all he does. There's a friend of mine I met the other day. And we were reading the Bible with him, me and some friends, and I don't mean this to, to sound funny at all, but this guy was completely wasted. He was just drunk beyond belief. And so we're sitting there and we're trying to share passages of Scripture, and he's responding and we're talking to him, and it's a great deal, and we pray with him, and so about 10 minutes goes by, we're done, and we're hanging out at this park, and he comes up to me again, he said, hey, hey, 
I, I, need, I need some help. I said, man, I love you, but I already told you I'm not helping you. I'm not giving you money today. We're just here to read the Bible. We're just here to pray about Jesus because that's really all you need. He said, no, 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 no. I don't want your money. So no, what do you want? He said, I have a drinking problem and I really need some help. You think, I, what, what am I gonna do, yell at him? Like tell him, you idiot, you shouldn't be doing that? But see, that's what, that's what the enemy tells us. We have a problem that when it says right there that you should come before the throne of grace with confidence, the word confidence starts with confide. It actually means that you open your mouth and you tell God whatever is going on in your life. And he is not there to scold you. He's not there to yell at you. He's not there to judge you. He is there to offer mercy and grace. That is how you get through this life, not stumbling into eternity by the blood of the lamb, but that's how you walk free. That's how you walk in power of the Holy Spirit. He has designed the throne of grace for us to visit every moment of every day. He's there to help us. But what I've started to realize even recently is that the throne of grace is only for those who choose to come. You can be wide open. We're here. Come on, come on in. But if you never show up, you'll never know what it's like. You know, I believe that even in my life, the worst day for me and the worst day for Christians are those that we spent having never been to the throne of grace. Those days are sad. Because then you start looking in and you realize you're a failure and the enemy comes along and tells you you can't do this. And again, that's all trash. All you have to do is get to the throne of grace. You come with confidence through the blood of Jesus and you just pour out your heart to God. I've done it time and time again in my life. Again, this is not to exalt me, it's to exalt him. When you go to the throne of grace, you can't just take my word for it. You have to go there for yourself to find out if what I'm saying is true or not. And I promise you, I know it's true because it says it right here. It is a real place, the throne of of grace. Does anybody want to go to the throne of grace this morning? Amen. We'll go ahead and have you stand to your feet if our worship team will make its way back up. As I was preparing this, I felt like God gave me three reasons why people choose not to come to the throne of grace. So we talked about it briefly, but I believe the first two, I think you could probably guess them, are guilt and our shame things that have happened in our past. But we know from scripture that the blood absolutely wipes out our guilt and our shame. So as we come through the blood of Jesus, that problem is solved quickly. I know it sounds so simple, but he paid for it, so it kind of is when you receive the blood. But the one I think that's more difficult to overcome, the third reason I think that we don't go to the throne of grace, not because of our guilt or our shame, it's simply because of our unbelief. I don't know about that. This sounds weird. I've never heard about an actual throne of grace up in heaven. I'm telling you, the only way that you break unbelief is you experience it for yourself. And that's what you're gonna have the opportunity in just a moment. I'm gonna invite you to the throne of grace. Actually, let me reword that. It's not me inviting you to the throne of grace. It's him. He's the one that invites us to the throne of grace. Check this out. In Hebrews chapter 10, it wraps all of this together. This is why we spend time with Jesus, not because I need to get an hour checked off my box, because I need to get to the throne of grace. There's things I need. There's, I need mercy, God, I screwed up again yesterday. I'm doing the same thing. Oh, I, did, I need grace. And I, I have people ask me, 
And so you're telling me then I can just go to the throne of grace because like I, I sin and I can just go to the throne of grace. Then I sin and I just go to the throne of grace. You know what? Those people have never been to the throne of grace because when you actually go to the throne of grace, you'll realize that your need and your desire for sin is completely eradicated. If that's you this morning and you're like, man, I wanna go there, we're about to do it. Check this out, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, since we confide, we tell God everything that's on our hearts, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Man, I'm thankful I don't live in the Old Testament. The blood of Jesus by a new and living way, look at this, open for us through the curtain that is his body. Think about it. The curtain that was there in the Old Testament that kept the high priest from getting in, he says, hey, hey, that was me. I was the curtain. I was the one you had to get through to come into the Holy of Holies. That's why on the cross, we have it recorded here in the Gospels, in the written word of God, that said when Jesus offered up his final breath, what happened to the curtain in the temple? It ripped from the bottom up. That was Jesus saying, I've now opened up a way. I'm the curtain, and guess what? I just moved out of your way. You can come through my blood, so you don't have to do it once a year. You can come anytime you want. It's open 24-7. The throne of grace is here for you. Praise God for the throne of grace. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not honoring your throne. I'm honoring you. You are the way to the throne of grace. It says in verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. It talks about that the blood of goats and animals, it said it was not able to clear the worshipers from a guilty conscience, but the blood of Jesus, it wipes that conscience away. Some of you have refused to go to the throne of grace because you don't believe that he can cleanse you from a guilty conscience. It says it right here in my Bible that that's the case and I believe it. It says we can wash our bodies with the pure water, the water of the word and the encouragement, not only to the Jewish people that were struggling with persecution, that wanted to fall back, but to you and I, to not go back, it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Amen. If you wanna to come to the throne of grace, this isn't a fancy invitation, it's just from him. I just want you to get out of your seats and come down here right now and pour out your heart before God. I know it sounds so weird, like it's me asking you to do that. I'm not, I don't care about numbers, but if you miss the chance to go to the throne of grace, I'm telling you, you're missing out on one of the biggest, most important pieces of your life. Well, Andrew, why do I have to come down here? You don't have to, but think about it. He died publicly for you. You're telling me you can't just make a public statement like I'm gonna actually come to the throne of grace and I'm gonna pour out my heart. We're gonna crank up the music. I don't know what you're dealing with. There's no way I would know. But guess what? God does. He knows the mercy you need. He knows the grace you need. There's no condemnation for you if you stay in your seat, but the invitation is open for you to come and just pray to God whatever is on your heart. Just give it to him. If you don't know what it is, just start praying. Say, God, I come to you through the blood of Jesus to the throne of grace. When you do that, you will find some hidden things in your heart 
that he wants to deal with. Jesus, I thank you for these men and women that are here. God, I hope they're not coming up because they, I've convinced them. God, I hope they want the throne of grace. Thank you that you're our high priest. Thank you that you have made a way. You have torn the curtain. You've torn the veil so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God, we confess right now that our time of need is now. Our time of need is now. I need you today more than I did yesterday. And when I wake up tomorrow, I'm gonna say the exact same thing. I need you more today than I did yesterday. We come boldly. We come with confidence to the throne of grace. Thank you for helping us in our time of need. Just begin to pray to the Lord, whatever he puts on your heart, just pour it out before him.